0: It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said to them, Sit down here. And they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling that parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, then redeem it. But if not, then tell me that I may know, for there's no one else to redeem it but you, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, well, this day then that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead person who owned this land, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance." Then the Redeemer said, well, I cannot redeem it then for myself, because then I'll impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, because I cannot redeem it. Now, this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm this transaction, one took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he took off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought her to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day to all of this. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and like Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And we're going to finish the story in just a minute. Would you pray with me? Father, um, one of the things I love about Old Testament narratives is that we can track our own lives through it. So help us to do that now as we read about what we're going to see is this redemption, this deliverance, this move of you in the lives of these very simple, ordinary people. I pray that we might not be blind to the fact that you want to work in our lives in a similar way. And and Lord, as we realize that, as we realize some of the ins and outs of how you want to work in our lives, I pray, God, that uh, you might be honored, you might be glorified, and that we would deflect all praise to you, and in a reciprocal way, trust you and submit to you in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, uh, one of the things that, that all of us know from our literature classes in college or high school, wherever we went, is that every great story has a climax, right? Every great story has a climax, where, where it's kind of the height of all the action. It, it, it's where everything comes together. It's kind of the main point of the story. So in the story of Pinocchio that we all grew up, it was when he becomes a boy, right? In Lassie, it's when he comes home. In Star Wars, it was that infamous battle between Darth Vader and Luke. Uh, In uh, that Harrison Ford movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, the climax of the story is when they found the Ark and the power of God was unleashed. Uh, The Gospel stories themselves are are stories. And in the Gospel accounts of Jesus, it's obviously His death and resurrection that's the climax of the story. Every good story has a climax. Uh, Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary defines a climax as, and I quote, the point of highest dramatic tension or a major turning point in the action. And so it's the point in the story that everything else is leading to. It's the resolution of the story, the happy ending or the sad ending, if it's a tragedy form of writing. And it's usually the main point of the story. All good stories have a climax. And so as we cap off today our Old Testament look at the book of Ruth that we've been going through the last month, what you need to know is that this story also has a climax to it. And the climax occurs here in chapter 4. Uh, The main point of the book, the height of what the author wants us to realize, occurs in this last chapter, and even more specifically, in the latter half of this last chapter. In other words, check this out. We haven't even gotten to the climax of this story yet. Uh, Week 1, week 2, week 3, the Scripture I just read before we prayed, we haven't even reached the mountaintop yet, the pinnacle of what the author wants us to know. And so I'm going to read it for you in just a second, the climax of the story. But before we do, let me fill you in on what's going on so that we all get it. If you remember at the end of last week, chapter three, we saw that Ruth and Boaz had been brought together relationally in a very God-honoring, high-integrity way. And now they desire to marry each other. It's that famous threshing floor scene of chapter three. It was risky, but it was right. It was filled with a lot of great temptation, but it was right. There's integrity laden throughout the entire chapter as Ruth makes her desire known to Boaz and he does the right thing by not going too far but also by saying, I also desire you, but I want to do the right thing. If you missed last week, you've got to read Ruth chapter 3 sometime on your own. It's one of the most steamy but high integrity scriptures or chapters in all of the Bible. I mean, it's just such a God-honoring thing. But you might remember that the chapter ends without resolve, because before Boaz can officially marry Ruth, he must have first abide by, abide by the customs and laws of that day, and he needs to check out if there's not a relative closer to Naomi and Ruth who would not choose to redeem them instead. And you're saying, what's that about? Well, you got to remember, this was a vastly different culture 3,000 years ago. And this was a very brutal culture that the book of Ruth is being written around. The time of the judges where morality and the family, everything was decayed to an unimaginable level. And so God's law was operating at that time to protect the family. And specifically, it was called marital redemption laws. And it was Deuteronomy chapter 25 and Leviticus chapter 25 that basically went like this. And it was designed to protect women. And that was that if a woman was married, which was a good thing in that culture because she needed to be protected and all of the stuff going on there, but her husband died and they had no children, or especially no sons, then the the brother of the husband who died, if he was not married, had an obligation to redeem that woman, to marry her now, to keep the family name going. Again, it sounds brutal to our ears today, but it was a way to protect marriage and family and women in that very difficult culture. And so when Ruth's husband died, there was now, Naomi's husband died, and now they were back in Israel, there was a close relative, most likely the brother of Elimelech or Malon, but we know Malon's brother was now gone, a cousin, a relative, who now could redeem Ruth, and by extension redeem Naomi, and bring some light and hope to their lives as well. And so in the first chapter there, Boaz, uh, who wants to be this kinsman redeemer that's what they call him a kinsman a relative redeemer now wants to redeem Ruth marry her and help Naomi but there's a closer relative that has the chance to do that so he goes to the city gate finds this closer relative and he says you can redeem Ruth and Naomi as well as get their property and obviously this guy's thinking hey more property that's good and so he says yes I'll redeem them but then he realizes he's not just getting land but two widows as well and so he changes his mind and tells boaz that he can have the legal right to be the kinsman redeemer and just so we know what a radically different culture this was back then it's worth noting that they didn't shake hands or sign a piece of paper they didn't have paper three thousand years ago but this unnamed relative takes off his sandal and he gives it to boaz as a legal signing of turning over his right to redemption I mean, I think someday, maybe thousands of years from now, if the Lord tarries, uh, people are going to look back in our culture, they're going to go, they signed paper to seal a deal? Like they shook hands? That's kind of odd. You know, because cultures change. Times change. And and that's what we're noticing here. But ten elders witness this. It's a done deal. There's a lot of celebration and blessings are pronounced. And then shortly after, Boaz marries Ruth. And we think it's the end of the story. But it's not. In fact, the author has not even gotten to the climax yet. He's not even gotten us to the mountaintop, the really the main point of what he wants us to see. And so let's read about it right now. Let's finish the story, and I want you to look at verses 13 to 22. Again, if you didn't bring a Bible, the Scripture's in your bulletin. I'm also going to put it up here on the screen. And let's read about what happens as this story wraps up and the author takes us to his main point, to the mountaintop, beginning at verse 13. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to you, Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David." Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And the story ends. The story ends right there. And I'm going to tell you right now, folks, that the climax of the story, the highest point of interest, what the author's been leading up to the whole time, The reason that he wrote this book in the first place, now get this, is to establish that short little genealogy linking Perez to Obed, the son of Ruth and Boaz, and then all the way down to King David, the reigning king, most likely when the story was written. That's the climax of the story. You see, Perez was the son of Judah who hundreds of years before was one of the twelve sons of Jacob, or Israel. He would go on to become the father of the tribe of Judah. There were twelve of them in Israel at that time, kind of like states or provinces today. And it's fascinating. In Genesis 49, verse 10, Jacob blesses Judah and prophecies that through him there would always be ruling royalty in his tribe. He, He said, the scepter will not depart from your hand. So don't miss this. This becomes what Bible experts call a genealogical royal link then here in Ruth. He's linking Judah, the father of Perez, all the way down through David, who would eventually be the grandson of Obed. He's linking the patriarchs of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with the monarchy of King David. This is the author's main point. His whole reason for telling us this story to show that Ruth's son, Obed, links the promise of God given to Judah, the son of Perez, with King David. And once you get this, some of you are thinking right now, well, Jamie, how can you get so excited about that? I mean, this just doesn't seem all that scintillating. In fact, if I could be honest with you, it seems kind of boring. In fact, genealogies always seem boring. This seems kind of anticlimactic to what the climax of the story is. Can we be honest about that? I mean, that's what many of us think. you ever watch that show A&E Biography? It's kind of like watching that show. I mean, fascinating, a little bit interesting, not very life-changing. That's the way most of us see genealogies like this, especially when we realize that, gosh, that's the main point. But folks, here's what I want to submit to you, and that is that in the end, believe it or not, this climax is actually an incredibly big deal because it contains some key elements that reveal some very powerful things about how God works and operates in human affairs. And so just notice with me, in our time remaining here this morning, two takeaway things that this pinnacle, this mountaintop of Ruth, uh, means for you and I. And I think you'll see as we go along how relevant this really is. And the first thing that this genealogical royal link teaches us is that God has a purpose and plan for this world. God has a purpose and plan for this world, and I might add, and it's not going to be stopped, and it's not going to be ultimately thwarted. And so picture a train, maybe, going through the wilderness of the mountains, the Rocky Mountains north of us. And and though this train might encounter some rough weather, and though it might have to break through some snow barriers at times, and even though it might get slowed down at times, it's going to get through. That's what the Bible says about God's plan for this world. It's not going to be derailed. There is one, and it's not going to be ultimately stopped. In other words, to put it in a very short way, the the Bible paints the picture that history is linear. It has a beginning and it has an end. The beginning is Genesis. The end, as the book of Revelation writes about us, someday is going to come. And there's a straight line in between it. That God is taking this world somewhere. And when we read genealogies, we realize that God is linear in nature. That He has a plan. It's not going to be stopped. And that there is a purpose to all the chaos and stuff around us. He's ultimately taking human history somewhere. Now, I want to show you in more detail what we're talking about here. And to do so, I want to share with you two key things about this plan of God that we see also in play here in the story of Ruth. Two things that are going to help you understand a bit more of why it's so important that we realize that God has a plan. And the first thing is this, and that is that God's plan is focused on redemption. Did you know that? God's plan for you and for me for this world is focused on what we call redemption. This is really what the whole book of Ruth is trying to teach us. This is what a genealogical royal link is trying to show us that God is in the business of redeeming and restoring our broken and messed up lives. That in the midst of all the chaos and all the seeming hopelessness. God has a plan, and His plan is all about redeeming what sin has corrupted. If you don't believe me, look again at verse 14. This is pretty uh, much in black and white here. Just after the birth of Obed, fascinating verse, it says this. It says, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the name of the Lord, now get this: who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. I told you guys way back in chapter 1 when we were seeing the absolute mess of Naomi's circumstances and of Ruth's circumstances and of this whole setting that the story has a happy ending, right? And yet, what I need you to see is that in the midst of all of Naomi and Ruth's mess, and I'm talking about like dead husbands, dead sons, no money, possibly no land, because it says they were going to sell it here in chapter 4, verse 3, this left them very bitter and hardened, right? Naomi changes her name to Mara in chapter 1, says, I'm bitter and I'm angry and all that stuff. Who wouldn't be? But then as we saw throughout the story, as it unfolded, we've seen the movement and the plan of God for Naomi each week become unfolded even more to the point that Naomi finally finds redemption here. She's delivered from having no protection. She's delivered from having no provision. She's delivered from having no future lineage. Obed is now here along with Boaz and they become the kinsmen redeemers. It's fascinating, that word redeemer in verse 14 here literally means to deliver, to buy back. It it pictures that something has kind of gone south in somebody's life or circumstances, something's been stolen, and now through a price being paid, it's been bought back, and good days are here once again. And that's exactly what the book of Ruth is trying to communicate to you and me here, that God has a plan for this world, it's all about redemption, all about buying back for Himself what sin has corrupted and marred. And so what this means for you and me today is that we need to realize that God wants to break through and redeem much of what sin has corrupted and messed up in our lives as well. And that's why we talk about uh, things around here all the time, like shattered relationships and marriages that have gone south and children that have gone down the wrong path and vocational struggles in a rough economy. Even emotions that don't always work right and present depression and anxiety to our lives. And this is what God in the, is in the business of doing. As the Old Testament would say, He restores the years that the locusts have eaten. And yet the only thing we need to understand about redemption once we get that God wants to do it, and I don't miss this, is that redemption is always in His time and in His way. Have you found that yet? In other words, the problem with redemption is that you and I have a way that we think God should do it in our lives, and because God is our good Father and because He knows more than we do, it's not always going to come in that way or in that time. And so the Bible is replete with examples of guys like Joseph and Job and Paul the Apostle in which redemption didn't seem to come as quickly or in the timing that they thought it should come, right? I mean, Joseph is, you know, he's, he's in a hole and then he's in jail and then he's in Potiphar's court and it just takes a long time for the redemption to finally come. Job, 38 chapters of whining, right? Where, where he didn't get that redemption and we skip forward to the end and go, hey, redemption came, but you got 38 chapters before that, Right? And then even Paul the Apostle, 1 Corinthians 12, three times he says, I pleaded, 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord, take this away from me. And you can just get the sense that he's just saying, God, now, now. God always says, no, it's going to come in my time. And then redemption many times doesn't come in the way that we want it, but it's still redemption. And it's fascinating. Redemption in the Bible sometimes means God does pull a fast one, interfere and change your circumstances. That's wonderful. He redeems those. But there's other times where in the midst of circumstances, His redemption is going to be to give you peace. Or to give you power to endure. Or to give you a deep sense of His presence. Paul the Apostle is fascinating. Early on in Acts, always writes about how God, or talks about how God is redeeming him by keeping him out of prison. You know, the, the bad guys try to do this, and the bad guys try to do that, and, and, and all these plans get foiled, and God enters in and keeps Paul out of prison. Then in the second half of Acts, Paul's in prison, and isn't it fascinating? He doesn't whine. He doesn't say, God's not a God of redemption. No. He writes about what? Peace and purpose, and how God's unstoppable plan is continuing on still. In other words, he didn't dictate to God the terms of his own redemption. He said, God is God. He's going to redeem me in whatever way He wants to. But make no mistake, all the greats in the Bible, all the greats down through history, banked on the promise of God that He is a God of redemption. God is in the process of redeeming our messed up personal lives if we will let Him. He brings personal redemption to our lives. And isn't it fascinating that the book of Ruth, not stopping at just personal redemption, also hints to the fact that this redemption is ultimately and most powerfully going to come to us in Jesus. You're saying, how's that? Well, as we've already established, the whole point of the book of Ruth is to link the power and activity of God from the time of the patriarchs in Genesis up to the ruling monarch of the day, David. That's where the book of Ruth leaves off. But isn't it fascinating that then Matthew, some 1,100 years later, is going to pick up his pen and write about the fact of another genealogy and show, using Ruth's genealogy here, how it all leads to Christ. And this is fascinating stuff. Look at Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 5. Again, this is a genealogy, just like in Ruth, where we kind of drive by it real quick in our quiet t- times and say, well, that's boring. Let's get down to the exciting parts. But you don't want to do that. Because uh, look at how relevant this stuff is here. Look at Matthew 1, verses 1 and 5. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David the son of Abraham. So so he's linking it all the way back to Abraham. Then he starts to list all the generations that occurred between that. And you get to verse 5 and it says, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. And then in verse 6 talks about David. Don't miss what's going on here, folks. Uh, Just like we saw that the purpose of our genealogy here, the pinnacle, the climax of the story, is to show God's purpose and plan unthwarted and unstoppable during time, throughout time, bringing redemption. Matthew's doing the same thing. And he's saying God promised a Redeemer all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, and that Redeemer who is Jesus is here now, and you can trace God's movement all the way through the chaotic and messed up times. He has a plan. And His plan is unstoppable. He has brought us final redemption in Christ, the forgiveness of sins being brought back to God. So God is a God of personal redemption, as we see in Ruth, and of of spiritual, eternal redemption, as we see in Matthew. Make no mistake, folks, amidst all that we see and experience, as confusing and hopeless as it might seem at times, God has a plan. It's linear. And His plan completely focuses on redemption. And it cannot and it will not be stopped. And it does great things for our soul to recognize and to see this. Now, once you get this, once we understand this, I wish that it stopped here. I wish that that we could end the sermon today by by saying, Well, God's a God of redemption. Isn't that great? Let's all go and experience it and uh, we'll be on our merry way. Uh, But the Bible doesn't paint that picture. It actually doesn't stop here. There's a second thing that we need to understand about God's purpose and plan for this world, this redemptive purpose and plan. And this is a more sobering thing, I'll warn you, but it's really important that we understand this if we're ever going to get through this and and experience His redemption on a more daily level in our lives. And so here's point B, and that is that sin can and does frustrate God's plan. Sin can and does frustrate God's plan. So, if you've noticed up to this point, I've made it clear that God's plan cannot and will not ultimately be thwarted or stopped. And that's true. But listen closely, folks. That does not mean that it cannot be frustrated. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that sin and its consequences certainly can frustrate God's redemptive plan for this world. If you don't believe me, look at what Isaiah, writing just a few hundred years after the book of Ruth was written, quoting the very voice and words of God would say. Look at Isaiah 30, verse 1. It says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. In other words, God had a plan for Israel. But Israel, as all of us know, who have finished the Old Testament, frustrated God's plan. Didn't ultimately stop it. Because again, God is sovereign and 100% in control. But sin, it's telling us here, is going to get in the way at times of God's plan. And though theologians for 2,000 years now have tried to explain exactly how this can be with God who is sovereign and in complete control, and they've even developed sophisticated theological and philosophical categories like infralapsarian and superlapsarian to try to explain this. I won't get into that today. The bottom line reality is that the Bible affirms that when we sin, When we do not deal with God the way that He wants us to on His terms, it frustrates His redemptive plans in our lives. Let me repeat that. This is so important you understand this. I mean, it's so comforting to realize God has a plan and it won't be stopped. You picture that train going through the Rocky Mountains. It's not going to get stopped. That's God. That's this world. Uh, But do we all understand that, that sin, which is such a big deal, we so underestimate it today, has the capacity to frustrate, god's plans can't derail it but it frustrates it sin is that big of a deal you know one of the things that i i, I grieve about our, our world today our, our very postmodern culture is that uh we've really downplayed both the word as well as the concept of sin we're really afraid of that word have you ever noticed that i mean nobody talks about sin in a water cooler conversation at work you're not going to be sitting with your buddy at Starbucks this week and him saying, hey, let's talk about sin. You know, the Greek word is hamartia. And, you know, isn't that great? And, you know, it's like hamartia is actually the Greek word. But it doesn't matter. It's just you're not going to, you're not going to find that conversation today. And yet think about this with me, folks. Almost everybody in our modern world, when push comes to shove, when you just get them into reality land, admit that sin is alive and well. Every good human being eventually admits that. We know that evil exists. We know that imperfection exists in our own hearts. We know that we hurt others, that we frustrate our children, that we make bonehead decisions in our own lives, that we grieve the heart of God. Nobody can claim perfection today. And that's all sin is. It's missing the mark. It's falling short. It's not living up to God's holy standards for our lives. The reality is, is that most sane people admit that sin is a reality. It's just that we're so afraid to discuss it. And yet the reality is is that sin is here. We might as well look it in the face and deal with it. And so the issue becomes once you do this, how do we deal with sin in our lives? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, even as a follower of Jesus, in which the Bible tells you that your sins have been forgiven on a daily level, Monday through Saturday of this week, how do you deal with sin when it raises its ugly head? That temptation that you're going to cave into. Uh, that impatience in your life, that lack of faith. Romans says anything that's not of faith is sin, so even lack of faith is sin. How do we deal with that? Uh, last week I gave you the three W's of how to make a, a, a high integrity right decision. Do you guys remember that? I shared the Word, Word of God, wisdom from people that you trust, and then within your conscience. So Word, wisdom within is how you make a right decision. Uh, this week I want to share with you what I call the four R's of how to respond to sin. You're going to like this. The four R's of how you respond to sin, and they are simply this. Look up here on the screen. You recognize your release, you receive, and you repent. That's how you deal with sin. It's so biblical. You recognize, receive, re- recognize, release, receive, and then repent. What am I talking about? Well, the first way you deal with sin is just to be a man or be a woman and recognize that you have it and call it what it is. I love First John one eight. People that think the Bible is irrelevant haven't read it. First John one eight says this. It says that if we say we have no sin, we we are deceiving ourselves. We are liars, and the truth is not in us. In other words, live in denial all you want, but it's not going to help you. Admit that you have sin. Admit that you have areas that you fall short in, that you struggle in. Just own it and be honest about it. Get it out on the table. And then once you do that, move on to the second step, and that is release it to God. First John one nine, the very next verse, after it tells us to get out of denial, says this. It says And if we confess our sins directly to God, He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, Confess your sins to Him. Name them one by one. Get them out. Do it driving down the road. Do it when you're in a quiet time in the morning or in the evening. Do it in the office during a free moment. I mean, all through the day, just take a moral inventory and just confess it before God. And then the third thing to do is then receive His forgiveness. Because 1 John one nine promises you that if in Christ you come to Him and confess your sins, He's going to forgive you of them. Larry Anderson, who many of you know, is a pastor of the North Campus now called North Bible Church up there. And a uh, about a year ago, we and I were on the phone talking about something, and I forget how we got on the topic. We were just talking about men. And he made a comment that I thought every man will relate to. He, he was just in a moment of confession. He said, you know, if it wasn't for guilt, I don't think I'd feel anything. <laughs> and I thought, wow, is that not how most men think? If it wasn't for guilt, I wouldn't feel anything. I, I thought I can relate to that. Uh, we're going to do that at the uh, retreat this year. But most men feel guilty about so many things in our lives. And Larry was just being honest. You see, Larry went on to say, but we don't need to live there as men. The reality is we can feel a lot of other things, and forgiveness is one of the main things God wants us to feel. And how do you feel it? You recognize your sin, you release it to God, and then you receive His forgiveness. And isn't it interesting, folks, you haven't done anything yet. I mean, all God is doing through those first three steps is dealing with your heart, dealing with your mind. And then, as a capstone to this, he says, now why don't you try changing? Now that you've received my forgiveness, now that my spirit is having way in your heart and mind, now, the Bible brings in another word that many of us don't like, but it's a good friend, and that's the word repent. It simply means to change. It simply means to turn from your sin. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. The fact that He forgives us, that He justifies us before Him. And And then He says, now you can change. And yet, you see, the problem is, is that many of us, tell me if this isn't true, we try to change by starting with number four. We wake up every morning and say, I'm going to lick this sin today. It's not going to get the best of me. And by about, what, noon, we've failed four or five times, right? Because we've tried our best. We've mustered up all that fleshly energy, you know, and, and, and all that. And, and yet we haven't recognized, we haven't released, we haven't received. We're just trying to do it in our own strength. We're trying to repent in our own strength. The Bible says, give it up. Don't do that. Do it. Deal with God first. Allow His power to take over your life. Allow His forgiveness to bathe you. Allow yourself to feel free. Then you're going to be in a position with His Spirit running freely in your heart and mind to repent and to change. So my challenge to you guys here today is are you going to let sin frustrate God's redemptive plans in your life or are you going to deal with it? And I'm not talking about perfection here. I mean, sin is a reality. And until Jesus comes back, it's, it's going to be a reality. But, but it is something that we can get victory over. But it's a process. Recognize, release, receive, repent. Do that and you will see God's redemption. Not as much stopped. Running more freely in your lives. And you know what all of this leads us to? And we're just about out of time. All of this leads us to the fact that once you've experienced his redemption, isn't this so cool? Then God says a second thing to us here in Ruth chapter 4. And that is he says that I will use everyday normal people of faith to accomplish my plan. In other words, I'm going to enter into your life and I'm going to accomplish my plan in your life and then I'm going to use you as imperfect and muddled as you are to now accomplish my plan in other people's lives. Is that not so cool? And so just real quickly look at what's happening here in Ruth chapter 4 as this story winds up. you got Ruth. She's a Gentile. She's a foreigner. She's really young. And she's an unprotected woman in that culture, which, again, as we've seen, can be a really vulnerable thing. But she had faith. And as a result of her faith in God, He carried out His redemptive plans in her life. Then you got Naomi. She's widowed. She's angry. She's penniless. But she had faith. And so ditto, God... Carried out his redemptive plans in their lives. Then you got Boaz, okay, and he was a part of Naomi and Ruth's redemption, but he's of the plus age. And did you catch in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, he's the son of a prostitute. I mean, Ruth wasn't saying that at the time, you know, it's like, you know, but reality is, son of a prostitute. So we know he had to deal with that in his life, but he had faith, and so God carried out his redemptive plans in his life. And again, I don't have time to bore you with this, but you know, you look at verses 18 to 21, every one of those names mentioned there, I'm telling you, they have stories behind them. Perez, he is the incestuous son of Judah and Tamar, and yet he had faith, and God carried out his redemptive plans in his life. Then you got David. I mean he's an adulterer, a murderer, he was whimsical, he was emotional, but he had faith and God carried out his redemptive plans in his life. Are you starting to notice a pattern here, or is it just me? Uh, God uses normal, everyday people, just like you and I, struggling with their own circumstances, their own sin, but who have responded to it with recognizing, releasing, receiving, and repenting, and He enters in with redemption and grace. And the point is obvious. God uses everyday people of faith to bring redemption to other people on a personal, spiritual level, and He wants to use you. Don't ever underestimate the power of faith rightly focused on God and Jesus in allowing you to be used by God to carry out His unstoppable plan in the lives of others. One story and then we'll be done. As many of you know, I was uh, I, I, I was not raised in a Christian home at all. I became a Christian when I was about 18 years old when I was going into my freshman year of college. And I went to a small little college in Michigan. When I got there, I was basically doing the typical secular college thing. I joined a fraternity. I was partying like crazy. I was just going to go nuts for four years now that I was away from my parents. And you all can fill in the gaps on that. But God, in His unstoppable plan, had other plans for me. And around Thanksgiving in my freshman year, He absolutely zapped my heart. Like Paul on the road to Damascus, I did a 180. And I started to go God's way. I knew my life would never be the same. But but at the same time, I was now in a fraternity with a bunch of party animals. I was a secular college where you know there was a lot of stuff going on there. And, and so, as many of you know, I'm not quiet about things in my life. wasn't back then. I'm not now. And so, what were these people going to hear about that was going on in my life at that time? Jesus, right? And I mean, they were going to hear about it in an unhindered way, in a way that if you guys think that I'm brash now triple it that's how i was back then i had no tact and so everybody i met back then on my dorm floor my fraternity i only had one question have you repented do you know jesus if not you're going to face a christless eternity i mean that is just that simple and i was driving them all nuts and yet as you can imagine i had countless conversations with people about spiritual things and though i didn't do it the right way i did it all the wrong way and i'm sure i even offended many people and i've tried to be a bit more tactful over the years my heart was in the right place and I was amazed that God used me to lead a few people to faith in Christ as well. But I had a lot of conversations when people said, you're a wacko, leave me alone. Now, fast forward about 17 years. I've gone to seminary, served a pastor in Detroit, felt God's call to become a senior pastor. I'm in my first senior pastor in London, Ontario. Chilled out, but still had passion nonetheless. You see, as Lewis calls that, your first fervor is now gone, but now you're reaching deeper with that passion. Walked to the mailbox one day, And I get a letter from the Freedman Real Estate Group in Farmington Hills, Michigan. I thought, I don't have any idea who the Freedman Real Estate Group is, but I thought I'd open it anyways. Opened it up. It's a personal letter to me. It said, Dear Jamie, I can bet that you weren't expecting to hear from me. Now, when somebody opens up a letter like that, what's the first thing you do? You look at the bottom, right? Like, who is that? And I look down, and it's David. David was on my freshman year floor at the dormitory there. And I hadn't talked to him in 17 years. And uh, he was one of these guys that I bugged about Jesus that basically said, get out of my face, I'm going to do my own thing. He's writing me now 17 years later. I can bet that you weren't expecting to hear from me. I'm not rushed for letter writing, so please cut me some slack. I was thinking of you recently and wanted to thank you for introducing me to Jesus Christ. While I knew about God from my religious upbringing, I didn't realize that I could have a personal relationship with His Son, Jesus. I'm forever grateful to you for witnessing to me, even though it took several years for your message to sink in, it finally did. I'm thinking 17 years it took. He says, I truly hope that your life is great. Then he goes on to talk about our college. He says, as for me, I'm married to a wonderful gal named Jennifer. We have two beautiful little children, Jack and Caitlin. He says, we are members of a great church, Highland Park Baptist Church. I knew the church, who emphasized the importance of being baptized, which Jennifer and I will be doing on June 6, 1999. Personally, I'm a little bit nervous about giving my testimony and speaking in front of about a thousand people, but I'm extremely blessed. I have a terrific wife, two children, and I thank God every day. Again, thank you for the impact you made in my life. Keep up the good work, your brother in Christ, David. I walked back to my house that day after getting that letter, and I said, God, I will never again doubt your redemptive work in the hearts of people And your ability to even use somebody as wacko as me. I remember having conversations with David. And I remember thinking, this guy, if he doesn't make a change, will probably never come to Christ. He had everything going for him. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was a tennis pro, played for Hillsdale College there. He had all the girls going after him. He joined a wonderful fraternity. I thought, this guy just doesn't sense a need in his life. I don't know his full story, but something over the last 17 years before he wrote that letter, God had a plan for his life. And to think that God could use an overzealous, brash, not very tactful freshman in college who practically knew nothing about the Bible but really had fallen in love with Jesus to accomplish his redemptive plans, you know what that tells me? That he probably can use you. He can probably use me. And that He can probably use you and I, once we allow His redemption to enter into our lives, to be vehicles of redemption in Scottsdale, Phoenix, and beyond. That's the gospel story. That Jesus came for you. He died for you. He wants to redeem you from a Christless eternity. And once that happens, He now has given you a whole purpose in life. And that's that no matter what your vocation is, no matter what your lot in life, no matter where where you go to school, what have you, He now wants to use you to affect the lives of others. I heard a preacher last night say something like this. He basically said that that God's not concerned what your vocation is. He's just concerned of how He can use you in your life. And I think that's exactly it. So last thing, would you open up your heart to Him today? I believe there will be nothing stopping Scottsdale Bible Church from being what one author calls a prevailing church in the community that God has given us here if we will all but open up our hearts and our minds to being used by Him wherever you are planted, Monday through Saturday, in your world. His redemption is open to you. Recognize, release, receive, and repent. You will experience His redemption. You will break through sin in your life. And then open up and submit to Him and watch Him use you. And I can't wait to hear the stories. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just all that you're doing in our lives. Thank you that you never give up on us, that your plan is unstoppable, that your redemption is going to happen. And Lord, we know in some mysterious way that even in the midst of your sovereignty and your absolute providence and control, that, that our sin, the sin of this world, can still frustrate things and get in the way. We experience that, God. And so, Father, I pray that we, as we wrap up this book today, would learn from Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and that we would respond to our own circumstances, even our own sin, by being people who recognize it for what it is, release it to you through confession, receive your forgiveness, and then repent and move on in our lives, becoming the men and women you want us to be. And as we do that, Lord, would you use us? Would you use us in the lives of the people in our sphere of influence Even in our own muddled, chaotic, not always good way. Use us, God, as only you can to bring others the light of Christ. Father, we'll deflect all the praise and glory to you. We'll rejoice in the stories that we hear as we see your redemption even today. And we pray these things in Christ's name. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.